Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's September 19th. It's a new episode. And this week, we're going to only talk about a couple of topics. One of them will be an update on a murder case I have in New York where there's some significant interest. It's the rapper, a young kid, a rapper named Kay Flock. Real name is Kevin Perez. There's some things that occurred over the past week that I think are interesting, and I think it's important that people that are following the case or even following any criminal case, if they're interested in the system, learn and understand the types of things that happen that are not always so heavily publicized. It's not uh, an opening. It's not a cross-examination. It's not a summation. It's not a verdict. But the sort of back and forth, the tugging back and forth that go on in a criminal case, the nitty-gritty of it, and the decisions that are made in the trenches that oftentimes impact the ultimate verdict in the case. So we're going to get into that in a bit. But the main thing, and look, every week when I determine what I'm going to talk about I really don't decide until perhaps the day before because there are so many things that are going on in the world and I don't want to just make a decision early on because it may be stale. It may be old by the time I record and I'd like to be up to date and I look for things that I I believe are important that people are interested in. And as you know, uh, my political stance, I don't really take a position one hard way or the other, except on a handful of topics. I'm somewhat of a a moderate. I know people are laughing as they're hearing that, Uh, but I do consider myself a moderate on on many issues. I mean, certainly I'm a social liberal. I'm for gay marriage. I'm uh, for some gun control. I'm certainly pro-choice to some extent. I don't think I'm pro-choice past a certain amount. All you need to do is have premature babies to understand that there's a limit on abortion, or at least there should be, unless you're just a completely barbaric society, because there's a difference between an abortion at eight weeks and there is at 22 weeks. And you only need to see the fetus and what needs to be done to the fetus in order to abort to really understand why I would be for the former and certainly not for the latter. But I digress. Uh, That's not what the purpose of this uh, episode is. We'll certainly get into that another time. But this week, the most important issue to me was uh, the migrants. Uh, I guess we have so many different names for them, the people that are crossing our southern border illegally. They're migrants. They're refugees. They're illegal. You know, that too. But they were, let's just call them, uh, well, you know, we'll call them all sorts uh, during this episode. But the big news this week was about uh, 50 illegal migrants were sent by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to the lily white enclave of Martha's Vineyard. The vineyard, uh, which is a very wealthy white area, nearly completely white, except for perhaps Barack Obama and his wife and all the people that are servicing the rich white landowners there, they lost their collective minds. They lost their collective minds when 50 refugees, migrants, illegal aliens showed up. But the important thing is that it really did shed a light this act shed a light on the horrors of our border policy, which has been revealed to be no policy at all. If you look at the numbers, they're really shocking. Border patrol officers are logging roughly 8,000 migrant encounters a day, a day on our southern border, which is obviously a record. If you can believe, they logged an average of roughly 7,700 migrant encounters a day last September. This is nationwide. 
And that had previously been the highest number ever recorded. So it's not like things are getting that much worse. They were really bad a year ago when Biden uh, was near the beginning of his time in office. And now we're a year later. And it's completely out of control. It's actually worse if it could even be. This year, there will be over 2 million migrants streaming into America over which clearly is a wide open border. Now, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, she defended the president and claimed that the Biden administration is taking, quote, unprecedented action at the southern border. And according to her, these actions include new border technology and anti-smuggling task forces. Now, you have to be some kind of imbecile to actually believe that. And look, this is not a partisan thing that I'm saying. I'm not partisan on this. I'm right down the middle on this. But you can't be lied to and actually think this could be the truth. I mean, you're not that stupid, are you? You can read, right? Uh, it's Kamala Harris, uh, our vice president. She actually said last week that the border is secure. Think about that. Now, now she's not just the vice president of the country, but she's also the border czar. She's never visited the border. And she's been in office for like, you know, we're coming on two years now. She said in an interview last week, quote, there are still a lot of problems that we are trying to fix, given the deterioration that happened over the last four years. That's what she said last week. Now, this is what's so incredibly crazy about that comment. You got to parse it out a little bit. She's saying things that she remembered saying when she was running for president two years ago. Keep in mind, I'm going to read this again. There are still a lot of problems that we are trying to fix, given the deterioration that happened over the last four years. She's referring to the time that Trump was in charge when he was in office. But it's now almost two years later. She's blaming the current situation on a deterioration which occurred over the last four years today. Harris and the rest of the Biden administration, they've been on the job for uh, over 600 days, a year and eight months. If the problem really has gotten so bad over the last four years, almost half of that has been on her watch as the borders are. But she doesn't, she simply doesn't have the brain power when she's talking to think clearly. She's just not that smart. We all know why she got the position. Obviously, it was because of the color of her skin. It's an affirmative action appointment. And there's no other reason because she certainly has no experience in, in a job like this. She was a horrendous presidential candidate. I mean, she was high profile and she got knocked out almost instantly. Everybody around her hates her. Her campaign, their campaign staff quit. Uh, now that she's vice president, her aides are quitting, you know, en masse. And she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about. But the blame the, the last four years, I mean, she's been in office for two of them, but she's not capable of thinking quickly on her feet, even when she's had time to prepare for an interview. Now, the White House press secretary, look, another, this is another uh, person that was hired, uh, not for her acumen, not for her skill, but she's part of the LGBTQ, XYZ, ABCDEFG plus, don't forget the plus crowd. She's an African-American woman. She checks a lot of boxes and that's why she got the job. And of course she's incompetent, but you know, this is what it is. And she doubled down because again, when the Democrats, it's all about identity. It's not about competence. And she fills, uh, she checks off all those boxes. She doubled down on what Harris said, agreeing that the border is secure. Now to suggest that the border is secure, that means that it's tight 
That means it's secure. That's what, that's what secure means, that it's tight and it's closed. She claims that Biden is doing well on uh, the southern border, and she claims that he was handed a broken immigration system by Trump. However, the, the migrants at the border that were interviewed just last week, they claim the reason they're coming here is because the border is not secure. It's because it's wide open. They were asked, why are you coming here? And they said, look, we see on the news, the border's wide open. We come here and the border's wide open. Why would they lie? The numbers aren't certainly lying. Two million in the last year, over two million illegals crossing over in the last year. Are you going to believe the numbers? Are you going to believe the, the migrants, the, the aliens, the refugees, whatever you want to call them? Or do you want to believe Kamala Harris and Corinne Jean-Pierre? Of course, you're going to believe the facts and the truth, unless you're some kind of imbecile that's like just a, a zombie for the, for the left. Of course, you're going to believe the truth. And the truth is that throughout most of 2020, attempts to cross the U.S. southwestern border were particularly low. This is when Trump was in office, and it was in part because of his stricter enforcement policies, in part because of the pandemic. There's no question that had some impact on it as well. But the deterioration that Kamala Harris is talking about, that Corinne Jean-Pierre are talking about, it didn't really occur over the last four years. The surge of migrants arrived in the opening months of the Biden administration. That's when it started. And I'm not a Trump fan, as you know. I think he's an idiot. But he sure as hell was right on the southern border. You can't deny it. And look, again, don't be a zombie for one side. Be open-minded. Because if you're just a zombie for one side, there's no talking to you. You're an idiot. Look at each issue objectively. Be fair, because the future of our country depends on your ability to discern truth from fiction. And not just be a zombie for one political party. Now, this is what, uh, this is a quote that I read, quote, either the Biden administration is uninformed or they're lying. And that's a senior Department of Homeland Security official said, quote, we cannot process the numbers flooding our borders and the administration's solution is scrambling for ways to let people in faster. That's the truth. They want all the illegals in. They can get them. Why? Because you give them free shit and eventually you give them that path to citizenship and they become Democratic voters. Because why else would you vote for this slop? You don't want to give away money to people that, that aren't even our citizens, that maybe some of them may be criminals. You want to take care of the people that are here first, don't you? Aren't there enough people suffering with the inflation, with all sorts of issues with the economy that Biden, again, didn't inherit, that he caused? So why would you want to pay for people that aren't even Americans first? You wouldn't if you have a brain in your head. And it seems to be that you can't be this incompetent on purpose unless it's a plan, which seems to be the only thing that I can see is that the Biden administration is looking the other way on purpose. They're claiming that they're trying to fix things, but they're getting as many people in as possible for a reason. They need those voters because the, the more the people suffer in America, the less they want to vote for this shit, right? Anyway, Texas border city, El Paso, is seeing 1,300 migrants crossing the border into El Paso per day. 
they're being dumped under a bridge to stay. Entire families are sleeping on the streets. There's no more room in the shelters anymore. They're overwhelmed, but they're over capacity. They can't fit any more migrants in there. And most of the recent ones are coming from Venezuela, which is sweet in its own way. Why? Because Venezuela is a failed socialist third world shithole. Venezuela's economic downfall has been decades in the making. Again, you need to be aware. Don't just listen to this podcast and say, boy, that guy's got a melodious voice. I'd love to listen to it. No, no. You're interested in the world around you. That's why you're listening to a podcast. That's why you're listening to a podcast on uh, issues such as this, because you're interested. Well, do some of your own research. In the early 2000s, President, I call him President, slash dictator Hugo Chavez, he redistributed much of the country's oil wealth towards social programs for the poor. He also nationalized private businesses, which contributed, as you can imagine, to a disruption to the, the national economy. And then he died, and the president slash dictator Maduro, he continued uh, uh, Chavez's policies as the successor. And socialism has failed. Venezuela, which was once one of the wealthiest countries in South America, as I said, is a completely failed state at this point. From the 1950s to the early 80s, the Venezuelan economy, which was helped by high oil prices, granted, was one of the strongest and most prosperous in South America. The continuous growth during that period actually attracted people who wanted to come to Venezuela. I remember when I was a kid, Caracas, Venezuela was a hot destination for rich white people to go on vacation to. Now you go to Caracas and they're eating dogs in the street. Place is falling apart. Everybody is escaping. Nobody's going there to, to live. They're, they're desperate to get out. Why? Because socialism failed. Now, nationalizing businesses destroyed production in any industry that they did it because no government has the capacity to run thousands of businesses or has the, you know, the profit motive to run them efficiently, I suppose. Instead, the government officials have incentives to please voters by selling products at low prices and hiring more employees than necessary to give jobs, even when it's a bad decision for that industry. That's what socialism is. Now the, the problem created by socialists, as I said, is emptying out Venezuela. And we were a democracy or I suppose a republic. We're being forced to deal with the mistakes of socialism in Venezuela. They're all coming here now. And we actually have Democrats in this country who are socialists. And, and these are big voices in the Democratic Party. They see what's going on in Venezuela. They see that socialism failed. They see that that disease is coming here, the failure of socialism. And these imbeciles are still for socialism. That's the Democratic Party. That's not the party that I grew up on and supported. I supported Democrats until 2008. I never voted for a Republican until Obama ran. I mean, I voted for every putz loser in the Democratic Party. I don't know if it was Walter Mondale. John Kerry, that imbecile, who else was it? Michael Dukakis, Paul Tsongas, every fucking loser there was, every weak need, you know, panty waste in the Democratic Party, I voted for. I wasn't really a far leftist, but I liked him more than the Republicans. Well, I learned because the party changed. It's not the same party that I grew up on. But let's get back to uh, El Paso, if we can. As I said, 1,300 migrants, they are swarming that border city. 
So the Texas governor, who clearly is not being heard about how the Biden administration's border policy is destroying border cities, and a lot of that's in Texas, he sent buses of them to places where perhaps the Democrats would finally take notice. Where did he send them? Well, to rich white leftist areas. They've been sent to New York City. And Eric Adams, the mush-mouthed mayor of New York City, who hasn't met a bottle of Cristal that he doesn't like, uh, you know, he lost his mind. He claims that his, his city is a sanctuary city, but he flipped out. He claimed that New York can't handle 2,200 migrants, but the country can handle 2 million? New York City couldn't handle a couple of thousand? And D.C., uh, was sent 7,900 migrants from Texas, and the mayor of D.C., she lost her mind uh, as well and said that it was a humanitarian crisis. That's Muriel, what's her name? Uh, Bowser, Browser, whatever the fuck her name is. I don't, and this is what she said. She said, we're not a border town. We don't have an infrastructure to handle this type of and level of immigration to our city. We're not Texas. So what did she do? She called the National Guard to get rid of them. I mean, this is a leftist sanctuary city. You can't handle 2,200 uh, people looking for freedom, for democracy. 2,200. Excuse me, 7,900 was, was D.C. still. But, you know, your D.C. and your, your politics is, is what's allowing the border cities to be destroyed. She doesn't want D.C. to be infected with people that they can't house, they can't afford. But she has no problem with all the border towns in the red states getting overwhelmed. It's not just the border cities that are being destroyed. It's the, the migrants themselves whose lives are being destroyed. And to suggest that D.C., as I said, can't handle a few thousand migrants because Texas can, I mean, they can't. Obviously, they're being swarmed. But even that wasn't enough to wake uh, the country up as a whole, to wake up the Democratic Party. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I, th I think is amazing. I mean, he's, he's everything that Trump claims that he is but isn't. DeSantis sent 50, 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard and the white people, as I said earlier, they lost their minds. They said that they had a housing crisis. That was their first reason why they couldn't take 50 people. They said they had a, a there was a housing crisis. It was this incredibly wealthy white area and they couldn't handle 50 of them who just happened to be people of color. Not surprising. I mean, if they were there to mow the lawns, I don't think that the people in Martha's Vineyard would care. The White House press secretary said that the illegal aliens deserved better than being left in Martha's Vineyard. They deserve a lot better than that. Well, you know what? Send me to Martha's Vineyard. It's a pretty fancy place. 50 people? It's one of the wealthiest areas on the planet. There are scores of hotels that are empty now because it's off season. Nobody's going to the Martha's Vineyard at the end of September. You go to the, during the summer with all your other fancy friends. The place is empty. 50 people. You can't put two to a hotel room? Come on, put them there. Of course, the rich white leftists in Martha's Vineyard, they want nothing to do uh, with people of color that are, that are you know, migrants. They had them removed in 24 hours. They called the National Guard on these people. 125 National Guardsmen were activated to deal with 50 poor immigrants. This is the mentality of the elite of the Democratic Party. We don't want you in our own backyard. We don't want blacks and browns anywhere near us unless they're servicing us. We just want to puff out our chests and claim that we aren't racist. But stay the fuck away from us. 
That's how they feel. Don't touch us. Don't look at us. Each of these migrants were told where they were going before they made the trip. They were all told. They were given literature. I saw it. I read it. They were treated well on the flight. They were happy with how they were treated by DeSantis. They said so. They were interviewed. Then they got to rich, white Martha's Vineyard, and they were immediately sent to an army base on the mainland in Cape Cod. The only blacks and browns that people in Martha's Vineyard want to see are President Obama and his wife. And all the, as I said, all the hired help for their fancy parties. And, and these people are really, really fucking repulsive. Lisa Bel Castro, she's the homelessness director of Martha's Vineyard. Imagine that they have a homelessness director. She claimed that there's a housing crisis, as I said. She wanted them out of there. Now, of course, she herself has a four-bedroom, four-bathroom luxury, $3.6 million mansion on the vineyard. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's in a secluded part of the area. 50 migrants they couldn't handle. President Obama has a $12 million estate there. Suddenly, his big mouth is quiet. He doesn't want them there. He's got a $12 million estate. He could fit them there for a week if he really cared until things got squared away. Silence from him. Silence from all the rich, white, liberal celebrities who live in gigantic homes there. Where's Larry David, that big mouth? Nothing from him. Not a word. Suddenly, he's got such a big mouth, suddenly he can't find his tongue. Now, what else did the rich white elites from Martha's Vineyard do to help these migrants? Well, they arranged for a GoFundMe fundraiser for them. Think about that. This is like one of the wealthiest zip codes on the planet. And a rich white Ivy League grad, a public relations executive from a rich New York family, she started a GoFundMe. God forbid she actually just gave money herself. Her wedding was featured in the New York Times, and it was said to be held at a multi-million dollar house sitting near a private association beach. She raised $43,000 for the migrants from other people, not from herself. They don't want to help the migrants. These rich, white, elitist, leftist assholes, they want other people to pay for it. They raise money from others to pay, except there's a catch. The money didn't even go to the Venezuelan migrants. It went to some other charity, meaningless charity. The money, it was stated, went to a, quote, a reserve to assist situations like this in the future. What does that even mean? So the rich white girl, who's never worked an honest day in her life, probably, I'm sure any job she's had was given to her by her daddy, she raised $43,000 off the backs of other people. She couldn't donate that herself? Come on. Apparently, Democrats are upset when Republican governors ship these illegal aliens to white cities. But what about all the flights from the border that the Biden administration sent you know, during the middle of the night to New York's Westchester Airport? That was humane. There was no outcry then. No screaming from uh, Mayor Mushmouth in New York City. You know, nothing about that. Nothing from AOC, Alexander uh, Cortez Jimenez. Nothing from her. Not a word. Because the Democrats were doing it. It's okay to ship them to Westchester in the middle of the night. That's okay when the Democrats do it. But when Ron DeSantis and, and Governor Abbott of Texas uh, send them to uh, Democratic cities, to blue states, they lose their minds. Now, 
the question is, are these political stunts, you know, sending the buses and the flights of immigrants from the border to uh, leftist enclaves? Well, of course, uh, these are political stunts. They're being done by Republican governors to shed a light on our border policy, which is clearly non-existent. We've got a border czar who's never visited the border, and she appears to be mentally challenged, uh, Kamala Harris. But th- this isn't about abusing the migrants who, the, for the most part, are innocent. I mean, if you take away the, the handful of criminals that are coming in with them, for the most part, these are people that want a better life, and you can't fault them. How is it their fault? They see an open border. They're told to come. They're told to come. Don't, don't kid yourself. Now, here's the problem, because there's parts of this that are really sickening about it. On June 27th, San Antonio police and Homeland Security investigators found 64 migrants some of them inside, most of them inside an abandoned tractor trailer in the sweltering Texas heat. And 48 of them died at the scene. 48 of them. 16 were transported to hospitals and five of those 16 later died at the hospital. It's 53 dead in the the deadliest human smuggling case in modern U.S. history. Now, this isn't good. But why haven't you heard about this? This just happened a couple of months ago. You haven't heard a thing about it. Those people died because of democratic policies on immigration, on the border. Those poor people, they didn't deserve to die. Like dogs in the heat in the back of a tractor trailer. That's a miserable death. You didn't hear about it, but you heard about the rich white people losing their minds in Martha's Vineyard over 50 alive migrants. Our open border policy is something we clearly cannot handle or afford. And it's enticing people of color who have suffered badly at the hands of corrupt dictators south of our border. It's enticing them to come here. And sometimes it's fatal when they do try to get here. They can be left on a tractor trailer to die simply because we didn't have the resources to deal with them. It's not fair to us and it's not fair to them. This is not a political issue. It shouldn't have to be. It's a life or death issue. Republican governors need to keep sending more of the migrants to leftist, fancy leftist white places. They've got to. You got to send the migrants to the rich, elite leftist areas. You can be sure that Muffy and her friends, uh, they're going to need to take off some time from snapping that perfect Instagram picture. You got to snap it. You got to have the hired help. You got to make them take that picture eight, 10 times to make sure it's perfect so that it's Instagram ready and get it on your Instagram. This is the typical imbecile leftist, white, rich housewife. And listen, with all respect, you're not so rich. You think you're rich. You're not really rich. You think you are. You're rich to your friends and yourselves. You're not really rich. Let's be honest. You think you're rich, but you're not. But they need to be taken away from that. If they're forced to deal with the ugly side of the open border policy, if it starts affecting their lives, it starts affecting their so-called idyllic lives, if they have to deal with the unwashed horde of blacks and brown migrants, guess what? They'll care. They'll wake up, they'll care, they'll say something, suddenly it's going to be a problem if it's affecting their Instagramming, these moron women. It's true. It's true. The open border policy will stop if the Yentas have their lives disrupted. And that's what the Republican governors are doing. There's two of them, DeSantis and Abbott. 
You got to keep doing it every day. Keep sending them over. Eventually, this will cause people to wake up and realize that the Biden administration is doing a very evil thing by allowing America to be invaded because that's what it is. Two million people, that's an invasion, period, end of story. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. We'll be back in a second. We're going to talk about K Flock, a complete reversal of what we're talking about now. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back, and we're here to talk about the K Flock case. Real name Kevin Perez, my client, charged with murder stemming from an incident in December of 2021 in Harlem. Now, this case is pretty straightforward, although it was told um, two different ways up until a video of the incident was initially discovered. If you look at the press reports when uh, this murder took place, Kevin, that's what I call him, was alleged to be walking by a barber shop in Harlem. And as he walked by the door, this is what the, the press reports actually say, he opened up the door, walked inside and asked the victim who was waiting for a haircut in the chair, what was he looking at? And then he shot the victim when the victim stepped outside to confront him. Now, initially, this shooting was described by law enforcement to be uh, in, the, in the media to be gang related. Now, again, once the video, because, of course, you, you every inch of every street in New York City is covered by someone's security camera. Once the video of the incident was discovered, it was revealed that Kevin walked by the barbershop and the victim who was standing at the door, not getting a haircut, not in a chair, but, but peering out, looking out the door, looking for something it would appear. Well, he rushed out to yell at Kevin when he recognized him. That's what it appeared. I mean, you see it with your own eyes. Kevin waved them off and kept walking with a young woman friend who was with him. Just walked by and was like, nah, not interested. Then the victim, or I hate to call him the victim because he was the aggressor, he then walked aggressively towards Kevin and, and the young woman with his hands in his pockets. He had one of those puffy jackets with pockets. And he was continuing to threaten them on the street, threatening them. Kevin is alleged at that point to have pulled out a gun and shot the victim twice. When the victim was placed on a stretcher, a loaded gun fell out of his pocket. So when his hand was in the pockets and he was rushing towards Kevin Perez, my client, K. Flock, well, his hand was on a gun, a loaded gun, and confirming that the threats he was making were not empty threats, I would say. Now, both the victim and Kevin are alleged by the state to be in uh, opposing gangs, and uh, thus the reason that the incident even occurred. So this is supposedly gang violence, according to the police. Now, the police spoke to everyone in the barbershop that day, anyone who witnessed what occurred before and after the shooting. It was in broad daylight. There are videos uh, that were had, statements of the witnesses. Uh, the entirety of the investigation was turned over to the defense, as the state is required to by law. But they didn't turn over the names of the witnesses or the people they spoke to. And the state's position is that the defendant and people, I suppose, associated with him are so dangerous that... We, the defense, should not be permitted to have these names as they may put the witnesses in danger, which is interesting because many of these uh, witnesses are presumably gang members themselves, as was the victim, who had a rap sheet a mile long with horrible violence in it. So you can understand that I'm a bit dubious that it can be believed that these witnesses are in any kind of danger. But their position, presumably, the, uh, the state, is that 
you know, this is gang violence and gangs do all sorts of bad things to people that are witnesses against somebody in the gang. I get it. Now, it's obviously important that we have a chance to interview these witnesses because they may have seen or heard what occurred when the actual shooting went down. And what was said or done can make the difference between what's ultimately determined to be a murder or a case of self-defense. And the state will have all of these witnesses, or at least some of them, testifying for them in their case, meeting with them. They're all things that we can't do. We don't even know their names. And we won't have our first contact with them until we're in front of the jury. They sit down, and I'm told by the judge, Mr. Lickman, you can start your cross. And as you can imagine, this makes me uncomfortable because the witnesses who were with the dead gang member victim at the time of the shooting, presumably they're aligned with him. They're his friends. They're either in the same gang, as I said, or or his friends. So common sense tells you that they're not going to be looking to do my client any favors in describing what occurred that fateful day, especially if you'll recall what, what first was told to the police who then spoke to the Daily News and it's online. They wrote an article about the shooting, and the article came out a week after the shooting, and it contained false information in it, false information that made Kevin Perez, K. Flock, seem like a premeditated killer. In the article, as I said earlier, law enforcement sources claimed that Kevin walked into the barbershop, confronted the victim. It never happened. The tape is clear. He never went into the barbershop, never said a word to the victim. The complete opposite occurred as... Again, made clear by security camera video, which revealed a highly aggressive victim with a loaded gun in his pocket, with his hand presumably on the loaded gun as he's rushing out of the barbershop and confronting my client and his lady friend. So you can imagine why it's crucial for me, the defense lawyer, to get my hands on the names of the witnesses so that we can determine through our own investigation whether or not the witnesses have any bias against our client. Or for the victim, the jury needs to hear about bias. That's an, an acceptable area of impeachment. How else can you determine the truth if you're a juror? You need to know exactly what incentive a witness has to lie. And you can't expect the state to tell the jury that their witnesses are liars, can you? Of course not. They're not going to do that. Now, their basis for refusing to turn over the names is, as I said, danger to the witnesses. But the law is pretty clear on this. There's a middle ground, a compromise that exists. Me, the defense attorney, can agree to not turn over the names of the witnesses to my client. To do the investigation myself with just my office and an investigator. And in this way, there can be no real claim that my client will get his hands on the names of the witnesses and do anything to intimidate or harm them. Which, of course, is a joke as it is because he's never even been accused of obstruction of justice or even approaching a witness in this case let alone harming or threatening them. There's no accusation. It never has been. He hasn't done a thing like that. He's been a good boy since he's been been arrested. He he turned himself in. He wasn't even uh, caught. He turned himself in. So we're told that the motion for this protective order to prevent us from getting that part of the discovery is going to be made months ago. This has been going on for six months. But the prosecutor was delayed in filing it, and, and I wasn't pushing hard for it at the time at the beginning because we had plenty of work to do on the case. And I don't think there was any gamesmanship by the prosecutor. He's a, a young prosecutor, not that young. He's a completely good dude, completely honest, I thought. I still think. I don't want to say thought past tense. He's a solid guy. He's been very easy to work with. But there's a limit to how long we can wait for this motion because we've got to get going. We've got to start 
you know, talking to these people. If we can, I need the names. And finally, just as the prosecutor is about to make the motion for the protective order, which will enable us to respond to the motion, which will enable a judge to make a ruling on the motion, which will hopefully enable me to get my uh, hands on the witnesses' names, the prosecutor sent an email to the court announcing the following. This occurred in uh, July. He was uh, referring in his email to the court and to me that he was reading a Reddit thread about the case. The title of the thread was, quote, this is the judge presiding over K. Flock murder case. And it discussed the judge in the case, a, a woman judge named Melissa Jackson. And the New York Post stated uh, in the article that she is known for being one of the toughest and strictest judges in Manhattan. And there was a screenshot of an article in the New York Post about how tough she is as a judge. It was in the Reddit thread. And the prosecutor in our case, in his email to the court, noted that one of the posters in the thread wrote, quote, if y'all was real K. Flock fans, y'all would get the judge clapped. That means killed. And that's scary. The prosecutor noted, though, however, just from reading it, that he had no reason to believe that Kevin K. Flock either knew the, the, the poster, knew about the threat, or was in any way connected to the threat. Of course he wasn't aware of it. He's in jail. He doesn't have Reddit in jail. But the prosecutor then noted, but I thought that I should at least bring it to the court's attention, and he provided a link to the, to the Reddit post with the threat. So I'm concerned at this point when I read this email. Yes, K. Flock is not involved at all in the threat to kill the judge. So what? I mean, if, if someone around him wants to kill the judge and K. Flock is not aware of it, isn't that precisely the reason why the government would not want to give us the names of the witnesses in the case? Maybe someone around him would want to kill a witness. <laughs> After all, they're willing to openly, publicly discuss killing the judge, apparently. So the threat directly impacts on this motion for the protective order that hasn't been made yet. And my thought was, well, why hasn't the government investigated the threat? I, I sent a letter back to the court noting that this was a threat to kill the judge. Where is the investigation? The prosecutor then wrote back and said he's not planning on doing an investigation. Why? Judges get killed in America. They do. It happens. How do we know it's not a real threat? And if the, the judge is threatened publicly but doesn't know about it until the prosecutor brought it up, maybe now this is impacting her feelings about my client. Maybe she shouldn't be the judge in the case because she's prejudiced by it. I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't have a chance to speak to her when this email was initially sent by the prosecutor. But there's a potential motion to be made to ask the judge to recuse herself due to the threat that was reported against her. Maybe she thinks she can't be fair now. I don't know. She didn't write back to us and tell us a thing. I can't just ignore what the prosecutor revealed to the judge. I just couldn't, the threat. The basis for disqualifying a judge is a determination, in this instance, of whether the judge has an inappropriate awareness of an extrajudicial source, something that's beyond the evidence that, that she'd be seeing during the case, thereby resulting in an opinion on the merits on some basis other than what the judge learned from her participation in the case. That's the law. But here's the rub. This is interesting. Who decides for the judge whether or not she's to recuse herself to be disqualified? Well, the simple answer is the judge herself does. And the law is clear. The decision is between the judge and her conscience. 
But even if she feels that she can still be fair, the law also makes clear that judges should avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So I wrote back to the judge saying, look, you haven't opined on any of this yet, but I want to talk about it. And we went to court last Thursday and I wasn't there to make a motion to recuse to disqualify her. I just wanted to hear what she had to say regarding the threat. How do we not at least hear her out? If I didn't ask her thoughts, I might never know if she was freaked out about the threat and needed to be disqualified. And I noted that the issue that arises from an email like the prosecutor sent regarding the threat to kill the judge is not limited to what the defendant knew or what he was connected to. I mean, that's part of it. But the more important part, is the threat real? Is it credible? Who's the person who made the threat? And how does the prosecutor know that the defendant wasn't connected to the threat? He's just assuming. Has he done any investigation? I asked. Did you do any investigation? Oh, nothing, and I don't plan on doing it. No steps to investigate the comment. Again, my comment to the court on Thursday is why not? The defendant's charged with murder, and the people, the state, have previously told us that they plan on making a motion for a protective order to prevent not only the defendant from getting the names of the witnesses, but they don't even want the lawyers, me, to get our hands on the, the witnesses. He's that dangerous, K-Flock, according to the state. That's what they're saying. Yet a threat exists online against the court in the name of K-Flock, and no investigation was done at all? I'm dubious, is what I'm saying. And just because the defendant, and again, in the mind of the prosecutor, on a hunch, without any investigation done at all, determined that Kevin was not connected to the threat, how do they know the threat isn't real? A threat like that, to kill a judge, regardless of whether the defendant was aware, surely is something to be investigated in a, in a, a time period in our, in our country where judges get killed. So if a decision, and apparently has been made, not to even investigate the threat, as it's not deemed credible for no reason at all, uh, what was the purpose of even bringing it to the court's attention if it's not a real threat? That was what I asked on Thursday. If you don't think it's real, why are you even telling us except to inflame the passions of the court? I mean, why did it need to be passed at all? No one knew about it. Nobody reads Reddit. At least the defense lawyers and the judge doesn't. The prosecutor apparently does. And I explained that it was clear to me that the only aim of passing along this threat to kill the judge, which was apparently spontaneously deemed to be a non-threat, it's to prejudice the court at a time when a motion for a protective order regarding discovery, regarding the names of the witnesses, and a very important motion that if granted will make it nearly impossible for the defense to conduct any kind of mean meaningful investigation of the state's witnesses, that email that was sent with the threat to the judge, they sent it right at the time this motion is about to be filed. And the criteria for granting a motion for the protective order to prevent us from getting the names of the witnesses is obviously the concern for the safety of the witnesses. Also, what happened is that when this motion was initially brought up in March, when it was first discussed in front of the court, I indicated it to, to the judge, and it hadn't been filed yet, but it was at least previewed. I indicated, look, I'm not going to fight this to the death. I'm willing to take a middle ground. I don't need the defendant to get the names of the witnesses. I just need them for my own investigation. And the law is clear. That is an acceptable at times, unless the danger is so severe, that's a, an acceptable middle ground. That's often the ways uh, a motion for a full protective order that nobody on the defense side can get the names of witnesses. 
And that's often how the, the, the issue is resolved. And the court reacted positively to my concession. And although it certainly wasn't binding her agreeing with me and nodding her head because the motion hadn't even been filed yet. But now we have this uh, extra judicial threat to the court, which neither the court nor the defense was even aware of. And the people claimed without any investigation at all is, is unfounded. I don't see how. It was dropped into the court's lap just when the motion for the protective order is about to be filed. I'm not sure what the purpose of doing such a thing was for, except to harm the defense's chances on that motion. And I don't mean to be repetitive, but these are issues that unless you're a criminal defense lawyer or in the system, they're not second nature to use. That's why I'm explaining it repetitively. My point is that if the prosecutor doesn't think that the threat was even remotely credible based on no evidence, no investigation, why tell the judge? I mean, I guess in case she's walking down Reddit Street and she needs to have eyes behind her back, why does she need to know about something that's not even real, according to the state? Now, of course, the irony of all this is the judge is 70 years old and she's forced to retire by law by the end of this year. She is not going to be the trial judge regardless because the case will not be tried by the end of this year. But she is the one that's making the decision on the government's motion for the protective order. And that's a hugely important issue. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted to appear before the judge, and as I said, I never made a motion to recuse her, her response that she's been threatened before, she'll be threatened again, she's not concerned, I believe her. I don't think for a second that she's going to be prejudiced by it. She assured us on Thursday that the Reddit threat would have no impact on her decision regarding the protective order request that the government would be making. But at least there's finally a date for the motion to be filed, and we expect a decision by early November, less than two months before the case is to be reassigned to another judge because of our judge's retirement, Judge Jackson. So that's where we are with the case right now. And there's a little bit of gamesmanship in my mind, what was done by the government. And I don't know. I don't think I engage in gamesmanship as a defense lawyer. Some people may disagree. <laughs> that's where we are. The case is going to start to heat up uh, once that decision is made on the protective motion and it's full steam ahead to trial. I don't see uh, Kevin being convicted of any murder because I think he would be dead right now if he didn't. Uh, use self-defense. He and his friend, his lady friend, would both be dead, in my mind, clearly, with a maniac who's rushing at them with a loaded gun with a bullet in the chamber and his hand on a gun approaching my client and his girlfriend. I mean, what would you do? You'd do the same thing. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I appreciate you sitting with me today and listening. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can go to beyondthelegallimit.com and you can write to me if you have any thoughts. Next week, I think I want to talk about college campuses and the infection of leftism and the brainwashing of students that are there and just how the social engineering that's going on that's putting different people into colleges that perhaps don't belong due to academic achievements. But this is what happens when you turn over college campuses to leftism. Well, you know, if you don't keep a close eye on it, it becomes a cesspool of, uh, of leftism. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. See you next week.